today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, March 13th, 2023. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. Headline is, Crisis in the Courts, Lack of Contract Lawyers in Iowa and Grueling Caseloads Put System on the Verge of Snapping, Chief Justice Says. Iowa now has half as many lawyers willing to represent indigent people than in 2014. This article is by Trish Mahaffey. Iowa is facing a severe shortage of contract lawyers willing to represent indigent defendants, meaning the 562 lawyers still taking those cases sometimes face grueling caseloads. That number is a decrease of almost 50% from the 1,100 lawyers who were taking court-appointed cases in 2014, according to the Iowa State Bar Association. Iowa Supreme Court Justice Susan Christensen, in her annual Condition of the Judiciary Address in January, noted, Our federal and state constitutional obligation to provide indigent counsel is on the verge of snapping. Nearly everyone says defending indigent clients is a tough job and that the pay hasn't kept pace with inflation. Hourly rates for contract lawyers now range from $68 to $78, which one lawyer noted has increased only $13 per hour since the 1980s. Also, contract lawyers are not reimbursed for their travel time between counties, which one lawyer said totaled 50,000 miles a year. At the same time, the number of felonies charged in Iowa remains high, 20,227 in 2022, according to Iowa State Court Administration. In general, Iowans facing criminal charges are eligible for a public defender or court-appointed lawyer if their income is below 125% of the federal poverty income guideline, according to state guidelines. Judges note that sometimes they have difficulty finding lawyers for indigent clients and must call or email lawyers to find one willing to take a case. 7th Judicial District Judge Henry Latham in Scott County is among those judges making those calls or sending those emails and acknowledged the past three years have been difficult. Scott County has five contract lawyers for associate court cases, none for Class B felony cases, and six lawyers for Class A felonies. Absolutely, it's a crisis, Latham said. I'm meeting with the local bar association to encourage attorneys to sign up on the contract list. I think some will be open to it. They just want a large number of attorneys to go on the list at the same time so they each don't get a bunch of clients at once. Sixth Judicial District Chief Judge Lars Anderson pointed out that overall there are now fewer lawyers practicing in Iowa. Many are leaving the state, and even law firms are having a tough time hiring, he said. Another issue is that in some counties, not all the available contract attorneys can handle all cases, some lawyers noted. If an indigent defendant faces serious felony charges, fewer lawyers may be available to help. Looming problem. About 90% of those who face criminal charges in Iowa are indigent and qualify for a public defender or court-appointed lawyer, Iowa Public Defender Jeff Wright said. Nationally, about four out of every five criminal defendants can't afford to hire a lawyer, according to the American Civil Liberties Union. The problem has been coming for a long time, Wright said. The rural areas were hit first, and now it's widespread across the state. In 2021, another 10 public defenders were hired to help handle cases in Iowa's rural counties. Wright said Iowa's situation isn't as dire as some other states like Missouri, Oregon, Wisconsin, and Georgia. Iowa defendants aren't sitting in jail waiting for a lawyer, and judges aren't dismissing cases because defendants don't have a lawyer, he said. 
Some of those states have been sued because defendants were not given lawyers or were put on a wait list. Being a contract attorney is a tough job, said Wright, who started his career as a contract attorney. You are consistently the enemy. Clients get frustrated with you. Victims are frustrated at defense lawyers. And judges make it difficult. They want lawyers to work it out, find a plea or resolution. The people who do this work are committed. Public defenders and contract attorneys handled about 162,412 cases in Iowa last year, he said. Black Hawk County Chief Public Defender Aaron Hawbaker agreed, saying their clients are often addicted to some substance coupled with mental health challenges. We are exposed to many ugly things that study after study shows can result in secondary trauma. Finding a person willing to do this job and do it well is no small task. In Blackhawk County, he said, the court has done some juggling, reaching out to lawyers to take cases and starting some diversion programs and other measures to decrease the need for de- defense attorneys. Sixth District faring better. The 6th Judicial District, Benton, Jones, Iowa, Lynn, Johnson, and Tama counties, seem to be faring better than others. The district has 24 contract attorneys, according to court administration. The district also has Lynn County Advocate, a nonprofit law office that takes the first overflow of cases from the public defender's offices in Lynn and Johnson counties. Additional overflow is assigned to contract attorneys. Julie Tracta, managing attorney at Lynn County Advocate, said the office is the only nonprofit law firm in Iowa that has lawyers who take court-appointed adult criminal cases. The office employs seven attorneys, four in Lynn County and three in Johnson County. Three of those handle only juvenile cases. The attorneys each take on 10 to 12 new cases per week and each carry average caseloads of 140 to 200 cases, Tracta said. Life as a contract attorney. Contract and court-appointed lawyers often must drive to courthouses in other counties, and they work with the courts to coordinate a manageable schedule. Eric Tyndall, a contract lawyer in Washington County, handles 50 to 65 cases a month. One day this month, he said, he had a plea hearing, a few pre-trials, two sentencings, and a probation revocation in Washington, Buchanan, Cedar, and Johnson counties. On a day like that, he said, he has to figure out what cases can be continued, what he can be late for, and what cases have to be done that day. Tyndall said he handled most of the cases that day with phone calls and paperwork. But he ended up with hearings in Washington and Buchanan counties at the same time. He went to one and worked out the other one by phone. I was pretty confident it would work without me being thrown in jail for contempt, but I wasn't absolutely certain, Tyndall said, half-jokingly. I was a little bit anxious, but had faith it would work out. Heidi Van Winkle, a Burlington lawyer who also takes cases in various counties, said she usually works 12- to 14-hour days, including some weekends. Travel can get complicated to figure out when it's 45 miles to South Lee County, 28 miles to North Lee, and 30 miles to Henry. It helps that judges have service days when they travel to rural counties once or twice a week for hearings. But then it gets complicated when he has hearings on the same service days in different counties. Anderson said he and other judges work with the attorneys to accommodate their schedules on those service days. Tyndall and Van Winkle also noted they aren't paid for their drive time and mileage is only 39 cents a mile. Tyndall said he drives about 50,000 miles per year between courthouses and jails. Van Winkle, a formal 
former Des Moines County prosecutor, said she continues to take indigent cases because there are very few contract attorneys in her counties. I believe part of the issue is burnout, she said. The business we get, the less we take, the, excuse me, the busier we get, the less we take care of ourselves, and we spend less time with our families. It is really hard to do everything. Tyndall said he continues contract work because helping people is rewarding. Despite all of the negative here, there is nothing like successfully helping another person in need, he said. Possible Solutions Chief Justice Christensen, in her January address, urged lawmakers to increase funding for indigent defense. Judges also are being encouraged to have more remote court proceedings via the Internet when possible, which would reduce drive time for contract attorneys. The court also is setting up a remote proceedings task force this month to recommend court rules or policies for remote proceedings in criminal, civil, and family juvenile law cases. The recommendations must allow equal access, due process, transparency, fairness, and safety for all court users. There are also proposed bills regarding remote proceedings, one sponsored by the Iowa Public Defender's Office, HSB 17, and the other by the Judiciary Committee, HF 468, to allow video conferencing of court proceedings. The public defender version has passed a House subcommittee. The Judiciary Bill was just introduced last month. State Representative Brian Losey, a Republican out of Bondurant, told the Gazette last week that raising the rate paid court-appointed attorneys and providing pay for windshield time continues to be priorities for him. My ultimate goal is to get that rate to $100 per hour, but that is going to take a little bit of time, said Losey, chairman of the House Justice System Appropriations Subcommittee. At this time, we are waiting for the reconciliation report that should be to us in the next couple of weeks so that we can start putting together our respective budgets with more specificity. Specificity, he said. I've heard that the Senate has some interest in raising the rate as well. I hope to have fruitful discussions with them on this topic. Our next headline is Services to Disabled at Risk Under Revamp of Agencies. 25 positions from Iowa Vocational Rehabilitation Services would be eliminated. This is by Tom Barton. Iowa Democrats and state employees say service delivery to disabled Iowans would be reduced under Governor Kim Reynolds' bill to reshape state government. Iowa State Republicans last week advanced a roughly 1,600-page government reorganization bill, Senate File 514, filed by Reynolds that would, among other provisions, shrink the number of state agencies and create more agency leaders who are appointed by the governor and subject to Iowa Senate confirmation, rather than being elected by state boards or commissions. Democrats called the bill a power grab by the governor. Arguing on the Senate floor, the bill will reduce government oversight and hurt the quality of government services for some Iowans. Reynolds has said she's not trying to accumulate power and that the move is intended to reduce the size and cost of government and increase efficiency. The governor's office estimates it would save $215 million over the next four years. Reynolds and Republican lawmakers have said the mergers will happen without laying off any state employees and that savings will come from eliminating more than 500 unfilled positions. An analysis from the Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency estimates that the reorganization would result in the elimination of 214 full-time equivalent positions and result in $12.4 million less in spending per year. Of that, $6.4 million would come from the reduction of full-time equivalent positions. 
The LSA fiscal note, though, states the department has not identified whether these positions are currently filled or unfilled. About half the reduction in spending, $6.4 million, would be from the state's general fund, while $5.8 million of the reduction would come from federal funds and $196,000 from other funds, according to the analysis. An earlier estimate from Reynolds' office predicted the bill would eliminate 513 currently vacant positions and save $18 million this year, $3 million of which would come from the state's general fund. Reynolds' office did not respond to multiple messages last week seeking to clarify the discrepancy between the LSA analysis and estimates provided by her office and included in recommendations made in a 68-page report produced by a Virginia-based consulting firm. Guidehouse was paid nearly $1 million by the state, which used federal pandemic relief funds. The governor's office also did not respond to questions as a press deadline about whether state employees will have to re-interview or reapply for their position as state agencies work to identify redundant and overlapping roles and removal and remove non-critical positions to generate budget savings. Reynolds' office as well did not respond to questions about a guidehouse recommendation that lists three positions with the Department of Natural Resources two with the Iowa Lottery, and 23 with the Department of Revenue that would be outsourced. Concerns raised about impact on disabled Iowans. Senator Pam Jochum, a Democrat from Dubuque, during floor debate, questioned the impact the bill and the reduction of full-time employees will have on the delivery of services to Iowans with disabilities. Jochum highlighted a portion of the bill that would eliminate 25 full-time equivalent positions from Iowa Vocational Rehabilitation Services, IVRS, reducing spending by $1.2 million. The state agency helps Iowans with disabilities find and keep a job, explore college and vocational training, access economic support via Social Security disability benefits, and to live independently in their homes. Currently, the Vocational Rehabilitation Program is under the Department of Education at the state and federal level to align with the agency's ability to identify and provide pre-employment transition services to high school students with disabilities starting at the ninth grade. Under the governor's bill, vocational rehabilitation would become part of Iowa Workforce Development, IWD, a move Jochum said would impact its ability to draw down federal funds to help pay for programs and could potentially cost the state millions in federal funding. Jochum, who proposed an amendment to keep the status quo that failed, said moving vocational rehab out of the Department of Education would make it more difficult for IVRS staff to access educational records of high school students in Iowa who are on an individual education plan for students with special needs, as well as collaborate with school staff and area education agencies across the state to provide pre-employment transition services. Vocational rehabilitation contracts with school districts and education agencies to provide services and share cost of employees. Revenue from which it uses to augment state funding and meet match requirements to access federal funding. Providing pre-employment transition services to students with disabilities aligns with requirements under the Department of Education. Jochum questioned whether that can be effectively delivered under Iowa Workforce Development's service model. If not, and school districts decide partnering with IVRS is no longer beneficial, the loss in revenue could jeopardize nearly a quarter of the federal funding it receives to provide services to disabled Iowans. 
a state official and agency employee who requested anonymity because there are no author- they are not authorized to speak to the media about the topic, echoed those concerns. A lack of easy access to a shared reporting system with the move to IWD would mean parents, students, and teachers will have additional steps and paperwork to complete to get student services through IVRS, which has aligned the process to connect students and delivery of services with the Iowa Department of Education, the state official said. Additionally, the move would assign vocational rehabilitation staff to work the floor and reception area of Iowa Works offices, which also has a potential financial impact, Jokum and state officials said. Regulations prohibit federal program dollars being spent on benefits and services outside of the state federal vocational rehabilitation program. Jokum as well questioned how the reduction of 25 full-time equivalent positions will impact the services disabled Iowans receive. IVRS is a top performer and is one of the lead states to delivering services to students with disabilities, Jokum said on the Senate floor. This is about children who need a hand up. Voc Rehab needs to remain under the Department of Education. A second state official, who also requested anonymity because they are not authorized to speak to the media on the topic, said IVRS identified two positions unfilled and not needed in discussions with Iowa Workforce Development and questioned how they would continue to adequately serve disabled Iowans with 25 fewer positions. According to an agency performance report from fiscal year 2021, IVRS has managed a waiting list of eligible job candidates seeking vocational rehabilitation services since May 2002. We have focused on increased staff capacity through expansion of third-party contracts, the report states, including providing employment services for workers aged 55 and older, as well as a specific focus on students with disabilities in transition. This allows IVRS to focus on serving individuals with the most significant disabilities, as well as providing for increased access for students in high school who are under an individual education plan or covered under Section 504, the report states. So while the IVRS caseload appears to be a constant, in actuality, IVRS is serving substantially more individuals with disabilities. We also are assisting core partners in learning how to serve those individuals for whom the disability is not as significant as those served by IVRS. Republicans push back on complaints. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican out of Schleswig, who chairs the Iowa Senate State Government Committee and managed the bill during floor debate, countered Iowa Senate Democrats' complaints. It doesn't add or subtract services. It simply aligns the people already doing the work, causing efficiencies when there are deficiencies in personnel, Schultz said, closing remarks during floor debate. It does not fire or lay off anybody. Specific to vocational rehab, Schultz said federal funding is not expected to be lost because funding itself comes from the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. It's a workforce program from the federal government, Schultz said. So aligning all of these programs under one workforce agency makes sense and promotes the efficient delivery of services. This is in alignment. This is an efficiency. Any reductions in actual state employees is through attrition, but there will be full-time positions that are eliminated. Okay, our next headline is Risk of Spring Floods in Eastern Iowa Increases. In latest outlook, many places along Mississippi have one in two chance of major flooding. This is by Brittany J. Miller. 
A mild winter has melted much of the snows that's fallen on eastern Iowa. But the most recent spring flood outlook from the National Weather Service warns it's not the local snowpack that's contributing to an increased risk of flooding this spring. It's the snow that's fallen at points north, especially in Minnesota and Wisconsin. In early February, the National Weather Service's Quad Cities Bureau's first spring flood outlook, mapping flood risks from February to April, showed little risk of major flooding in eastern Iowa. Slightly above normal risks of flooding were projected excuse me, for, were projected for areas along the Mississippi River if northern snowpacks on frozen ground melted rapidly. A few weeks later, an updated spring flood outlook estimated significantly higher threats of flooding, especially along the Mississippi River. Warmer weather in late February caused large reductions in local snowpacks. The deeper snowpacks on frozen ground farther north, which received a foot of fresh snowfall, were projected to lead to flood effects in Mississippi River communities. Still, there were no locations with high chances for flooding. Most locations along the Mississippi had at least a 50% chance of moderate or minor flooding, and many local rivers showed at least a 25% chance of minor flooding. What's new? Spring flood risks remain well above normal for, for all points along the Mississippi River and are increasing at points along tributary rivers such as the Iowa, Cedar, and Des Moines rivers that eventually dump into the Mississippi, the latest spring flood outlook showed Thursday. Despite well above average risks of flooding on the Mississippi River, high impact flooding is not guaranteed. The rates of future snowmelt, snowfall, and rainfall will shape flood threats throughout spring, hydrologist Matt Wilson of the Weather Service's Quad Cities Bureau said during a webinar Thursday. As in the previous spring flood outlooks, average temperatures and precipitation in the region have remained above normal. In the headwaters of the Mississippi River, average precipitation has reached up to 300% above normal this winter. Local snowpacks have dwindled thanks to continued mild weather. Thursday's fresh snow and any future snowfall could change this, although Wilson suspects the powder will disappear over the next week or so. The real concern lies with the snowpack farther north, he said. Much of the upper Mississippi River Basin is blanketed with 4 to 8 inches of snow. Accumulation throughout Minnesota and parts of Wisconsin and North Dakota reached the top 10% of historical snow water equivalent records. That water is eventually going to melt and come down, Wilson said. That's going to be what really makes or breaks our spring flood season. Stream flows are above normal and much above normal in local tributaries, leaving them with less capacity to store potential runoff from snowmelt and rain without flooding. Those rivers then funnel into the Mississippi River main stem and increase flood risks there. Almost every location between Burlington and Dubuque along the Mississippi has a 1 in 2 chance of major flooding. Some streams in the Quad Cities already have reached minor and moderate flood stages from recent rains, Wilson said. From the previous outlook, there was a slight increase in the number of tributaries that could expect minor to major flooding throughout eastern Iowa. The risk for our tributaries still is normal for most of the area, but it is increasing, Wilson said. That's just due to the fact that we have had a wetter than average spring and our stream flows are up. While there are low chances for precipitation in the second half of March, below average temperatures also are expected. So although snowpacks shouldn't grow, they likely won't shrink much either. When they do melt, their water could be absorbed into the ground, depending on soil moisture and frost levels. Most of Iowa entered the winter under drought conditions. 
Now, soil moisture levels have returned to normal to slightly above average in the Quad Cities Bureau's service area. Farther north, much of the ground is frozen between 10 and 30 inches deep, which could allow for more runoff that increases stream flows. Local soils exhibit shallow to no frost, though, allowing the ground to absorb more snowmelt and rain. We will continue to be thankful that we're not dealing with snow on top of frozen ground down here, Wilson said. It didn't manifest this year. While this outlook originally was slated to be the final one for the season, the Bureau plans to release another in late March to map flood risks through June. We'll have maybe a little bit better news there for that season outlook, Wilson said. Our next headline, Cedar Rapids Woman, Two Others Killed in Head-On Collision on I-80 by John McLaughlin. A Cedar Rapids woman was killed Friday night in a triple fatal head-on crash on Interstate 80 in Scott County, according to an Iowa State Patrol accident report. Brenna Anderson Yoder, 23, of Cedar Rapids, was a passenger who died in the crash. At 11.15 p.m., a 2014 Volkswagen and a 2014 Chevrolet collided head-on in the inside lane of eastbound I-80 at mile marker 284, but the direction of travel for each vehicle had not yet been determined in the ongoing investigation. The driver of the Volkswagen, 46-year-old Tamika Paney of Rock Island, Illinois, was killed in the crash. The Chevy driver, 29-year-old Andrea Smith of Davenport, survived the collision. Jessica Carr, 34, of Fresno, California, also was killed in the crash. It was unclear from the report which vehicle or vehicles Anderson Yoder and Carr were passengers in. Okay, now we're going to turn to the opinion section, and I'll read the community letters. The first one, headline: Coal is the rear. Excuse me, coal is the real COVID scandal. Gazette conserv. Gazette conservative columnist Athea Cole's piece about being denied care at U of I hospitals deserves a second look. Cole details how wearing the COVID-required masks caused her debilitating headaches and led her to get a letter from her doctor saying she should be excused from wearing the mask. At UIHC, the mask mandate was still in effect last week. When Cole refused, she was denied service. She said she also tried wearing a face shield instead, but the inside of it reflected my own movement in a distorted fashion, much like a funhouse mirror, causing me to become disoriented and unable to walk without assistance. Oh my. My wife has punched the clock at UIHC for 33 years in the housekeeping department and has worked around AIDS, VRE, MRSA, C. diff, and hepatitis along with TB, bedbugs, and lice. UIHC is a big place, and many patients are immunocompromised, like the little kids who get cancer treatments and bone marrow transplants. The hospital needs to provide a safe environment for patients, staff, and visitors, and they then have rules in place that help keep it that way. While I sympathize with Cole's medical challenges, I wonder why she couldn't have taken some strong headache medication, even IV if necessary, before before going in. And as for the face shields, she should get to experience what staff experienced by wearing both face shield and respirators while at work for years, and they walked without assistance. That was from Thomas Jacobson from Riverside. Our next letter is What Happened to Iowa? I have lived in Iowa for 70-plus years. I was proud of our state, being top in the nation in public education and the number of high school graduates, being one of the first in the nation to legalize same-sex marriage, a state that elected Barack Barack Obama. 
I am now ashamed of being an Iowan. Our governor and legislator, legislature have been denigrating the importance of public schools and public school teachers for years, using slurs against them and treating them like the enemy of our children. We now know why, so the governor could get her private school vouchers passed. The governor and legislature are also trying to ban any books in schools they feel are offensive, including acknowledged classics. They are trying to ban same-sex marriages. They do not want students to be who they feel they really are. They do not want actual history taught to students. I am sick of it. We are going backward instead of progressing. Here are practical matters that should be considered, should that they should consider. One, I know of gay married people who have professional jobs but are moving to Minnesota due to this purge on homosexuality. How many more are moving that I don't know about? People who do not want books banned, gender identity denied, or racist history ignored. Two, why would any young person, couple, or family move to Iowa when they can see how human rights are being infringed, infringed upon? If this doesn't stop, all Iowans will be sorry. And that was from Judy Gustafson out of Cedar Rapids. And now we're going to turn to the obituaries. And our first is Margaret M. Doyle of Cedar Rapids, passed away and entered into the presence of her Lord Friday, March 10th, after a long battle with Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia. During this time, Margaret remained uncomplaining and accepting. Visitation will be held at 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, March 17th, at Marion Christian Church, located at 1050 McGowan Boulevard in Marion. A service of celebration will be held at 11 a.m. the following morning, Saturday, March 18th, at the church. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. Margaret was born July 17, 1933, in Champaign, Illinois, the daughter of Dean E. and Blanche A. Morphy, Alexander. The Alexander family moved to Lincoln, Illinois, in 1939. Margaret graduated from Lincoln Community High School. She was united in marriage to Robert L. Doyle on July 22, 1951, in Lincoln. To this union, a son, David, and a daughter, Barbara, were born. Margaret was very talented musically, in dramatics, writing, and speaking. She used her talents while raising her children, in their schools, her church, and later in the workplace. She held positions that were people-oriented, including sales, activities director, tour guide, and receptionist. Margaret was also a member of the Marian Christian Church. She will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved her. Margaret is survived and lovingly remembered by her husband of 71 years, Robert, son David, spouse Colleen Doyle of Toddville, daughter Barbara, spouse Donald Caper of Palo, eight grandchildren, 13 great-grandchildren, one great-great-grandchild, one sister, Judith A. Katz of Indianapolis, Indiana, and one brother, David E. Alexander of Lincoln, Illinois. She was preceded in death by her parents. In lieu of flowers and memorials in Margaret's memory, may be directed to the family. Please share a memory of Margaret at MurdochFuneralHome.com under obituaries. Nancy Viola Iams, I-I-A-M-S, 75 of Cedar Rapids, passed away surrounded by her loving family Friday, March 10th at Hiawatha Care Center in Hiawatha. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, March 14th at Cedar Hills Community Church in Cedar Rapids. 
Funeral service at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, March 15th at the church. Burial will be at Linwood Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service is assisting the family with arrangements. Nancy was born on November 22, 1947 in Des Moines to Frank and Mary Van Haften Johnson. She married Russell Wayne Iams on May 9, 1964 in Peru, Iowa. The couple was married 44 years before Russell passed away in 2008. Nancy made custom draperies for 42 years. Faith, family, and friends were always very important to Nancy. She loved to entertain, and everyone was always welcome. She was a very active member of the Cedar Hills Community Church. Nancy will be missed by everyone who knew and loved her. Survivors include her son, Therese, excuse me, Terry, spouse Teresa Iams, daughter Stacy Iams, Stephanie Robertson, significant other Stephanie Robertson, son Dustin Iams, grandchildren Jennifer, spouse John Christopherson, and Katie, spouse Domingo Vega, Megan Iams, Joshua Iams, significant other Bailey Maine, and Josh, spouse Maddie Allen, great-grandchildren Jocelyn Christopherson, Jax Christopherson, Carson Vega, Reese Vega, and Aria Allen, and sisters Darlene, spouse Jean Miller, Joy Miller, and Rosemary, spouse Carrie McDaniel. She was preceded in death by her husband, Russell Imes, beloved father and mother, Frank and Mary Johnson, and brother Tom Johnson. Nancy's family would like to thank everyone at the Hiawatha Care Center and Milestones Adult Daycare for their compassionate care. Memorials may be directed to her family. Please share a memory of Nancy at MurdochFuneralHome.com under obituaries. Jonetta Joe Rose Myers, 68, passed away on March 11th in Cedar Rapids. I'm sorry, in Cedar Falls. She is from Cedar Rapids. After a long battle with breast cancer, Joe was born February 16, 1955, in Waterloo. Visitation will be held at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home in Cedar Rapids from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, March 16th, and one hour before the funeral service on Friday at the Chapel of Memories. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Friday, March 17th at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories in Cedar Rapids. Entombment will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Joe was a Girl Scout. As a teenager, she served with the Masonic Order of Rainbow Girls as chaplain in nature. Prior to moving to Cedar Falls, Joe was a member of the Asbury UMW, having served as treasurer for several years and then as co-president in Cedar Rapids. She loved her family and friends, especially in time spent together at the cabins in Wisconsin. Joe enjoyed sewing, crocheting, and reading. She also enjoyed serving at Chatterpots and other activities at Asbury Church. Joe was preceded in death by her mother, Grace Becker of Hazleton, infant daughter, Kimberly Sue, Cedar Rapids, and infant brother, David John Becker, Wisconsin. She is survived by her husband, Larry E. Myers of Cedar Falls, her father, Richard Becker of Hazleton, a son, Matthew Myers, spouse Christian, granddaughter, Isabel, a stepdaughter, Christy, Logan, spouse Leonard, three step-grandchildren, Courtney, Thomas, and Hunter, one step-great-grandchild, Teresa, a brother, Thomas Ray, spouse Luann of Waverly, and many nieces, nephews, and cousins. Memorials may be made to Cedar Valley Hospice or to the family. Online condolences are welcome at cedarmemorial.com under obituaries.
Troy Springer of Cedar Rapids, 49, passed away surrounded by his loving family on Friday, March 10th at St. Luke's Hospital after a sudden illness. A celebration of life will be held this summer at Ellis Park. Troy was born on June 28, 1973 in Cedar Rapids to Terry and Shelley Springer. Troy was employed by Hannah Plumbing and Heating. He loved boating and water sports, especially attending boat races. He was a member of the Cedar Rapids Boat Club and the local 125 Plumbers Pipefitters Union. Troy liked to travel and spend time with his friends and family. He was a loyal friend who will be remembered as having the biggest heart and the kindest soul. Troy enjoyed cooking and was known for his love of butter and pepper, maybe even a tad too much. Troy is survived by his three daughters, Crystal, spouse Carlton, Alred, Erica, spouse Ariel Springer, and Michaela, spouse Jacob Harrison, his parents Terry and Shelley Springer, sister Stephanie, spouse Brad Oberruder, niece Emma, and a granddaughter expected next week. Memorial contributions may be made to a memorial fund care of the, for the family through Cedar Memorial. Condolences may be left at iowacremation.com under obituaries. Marjorie Ann Norton of Clarence, 94, formerly of Loudoun, passed away on March 9th at the Clarence Assisted Living Center. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday, March 17th, at Chapman Funeral Home in Clarence. Burial will be at a later date in Oakland Cemetery in Sac City, Iowa. Marjorie was born June 2, 1928, in Sac City to Harry and Myrtle Young Graham. She was married to William B. Norton from 1951 to 71. Survivors include her children Brad, spouse Liz Norton of Denver, Colorado, and Marla, spouse Elaine Norton Taylor of Omaha, Nebraska, stepson William Norton Jr., spouse Georgianne of Kansas City, Kansas, grandchildren Rachel, Chris, Nathan, Jared, Madeline, and Meredith, and her sweet nieces and nephew. She was preceded in death by her parents, daughter Denise, a brother, and a sister. Marjorie graduated from Iowa Falls High School in 1946, where she played the clarinet and basketball. She then attended and graduated from the Iowa Methodist School of Nursing in 1949. She was the pediatric head nurse at the Blank Methodist Hospital in Des Moines for years and is credited with starting the public health nursing program in Cedar County. Her career with the Cedar County Health Department spanned 27 years, from 1966 until 1993. Marjorie truly enjoyed working with her patients and their families and had many harrowing stories of trying to reach her patients driving on Iowa's rural winter roads. Marjorie loved to read, watch Iowa Hawkeye sports, and in her earlier years, gardening. Marjorie's family would like to thank the Clarence Assisted Living Center for the wonderful care given to Marjorie over the years. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Clarence Assisted Living Center. Condolence and memories may be left at chapmanfh, excuse me, chapmanfh.com. Kenneth Meyer, 85, of Fairfax, passed away Thursday, March 9th at Mercy Hallmar Residential Care. Friends may visit with the family from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, March 17th at Brosh Chapel, located at 2121 Bowling Street, Southwest, Cedar Rapids. Celebration of Life services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, March 18th at Trinity Lutheran Church, 1363 First Avenue, Southwest, Cedar Rapids. Burial will be in the Fairfax Cemetery with military honors. 
Kenneth Eugene was born at home February 26, 1938, in Deep River, the son of Henry J. and Alma F. Frunt Meyer. Ken attended St. John's Lutheran grade school. He graduated from Deep River High School in 1956. Following graduation, he served in the U.S. Army from 1957 to 59, stationed in Germany. Upon his return, he married Elaine Teslau on May 21, 1960, at the Glenwood Lutheran Church out in the country on Old Stage Road, Decorah. Ken worked at a manor refrigeration briefly and then Wilson Foods Farmstead from 1960 to 90. He then worked as plant manager at City Carton Recycling in Cedar Rapids until his retirement in 2003. Ken spent his free time garden tilling, fixing TVs, doing electrical wiring, cutting wood, hitting golf balls, and vacationing with his family. He participated in and watched sports all his life. He loved the Hawkeyes. Ken was a member of Trinity Lutheran for 62 years, where he was an usher and sang with the men's choir for 20 years. He will be remembered for his sense of humor and his photographic memory of every mile marker between here and Colorado. He was a great provider and a hard worker and will be dearly missed by all who knew and loved him. Ken is survived by his wife, Elaine, of 62 years, children Pam, spouse Dan Pruitt of Longmont, Colorado, David Meyer of Hiawatha, John, spouse Kelly Glick, Meyer of Loveland, Colorado, and Alicia, spouse Davin Heldon of Berthoud, Colorado. Grandchildren Willie Pruitt and Emma, spouse Jake Pruitt, Greta Pruitt, Soren Meyer, Mia Heldon, and Logan Heldon. Brothers Wayne, spouse Marianne Meyer, and Donald, spouse Judy Meyer, and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his sister, Ruth, spells Bud Gwynn. Memorials may be directed to Trinity Lutheran Church, the Parkinson's Foundation, or the Fairfax First Responders in care of the Fairfax Fire Department. The family would like to thank the St. Luke's staff, nurses, techs, and doctors for their wonderful care to Hallmar Mercy Hospital staff, nurses, and techs for special care, and to Unity Point inpatient, outpatient, and home health therapy for their health. Online condolences may be expressed to the family at brushchapel.com. Catherine C. Kathy Anderson, 88, lifelong resident of Iowa City, died Thursday, March 9th at Lantern Park Care Center in Coralville. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, March 15th, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Iowa City, with burial to follow at St. Joseph's Cemetery in Iowa City. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Tuesday at Gay and Seahaw Funeral and Cremation Service. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations can be made in her memory to St. Patrick's Catholic Church or Eastern Iowa Alzheimer's Association. To share a thought, memory, or condolence with her family, please visit Gay and Seahaw Funeral and Cremation Service website at gayandseahaw.com. Catherine C. Beasley was born July 21, 1934, in Iowa City the daughter, uh, daughter of Leo and Helen Patterson Beasley. Attending Iowa City schools, she graduated from City High School in 1952. Kathy married Dwayne Anderson on May 22, 1953, in Cedar Rapids, and before Dwayne's death in 2021, the couple had celebrated 68 years of marriage. For many years and for many families of this area, she provided childcare at her home, another mom to many kids. Kathy and Duane enjoyed wintering in Las Vegas, where she enjoyed the casinos. Kathy was always there for her family, active in all the kids' activities as they were growing up, and this continued on with the grandchildren, too. 
She was the backbone of their family, as there was nothing more important to her than her family and her kids she cared for. Kathy's family includes two sons, Jack, spouse Kim Schlaubach Anderson, and Scott, spouse Tammy Anderson, two daughters, Deborah Plath and Jill, spouse Steve Skay, daughter-in-law, Diane, spouse Bob Meyer, nine grandchildren, Nicholas, spouse Melissa Anderson, Angela Pogampole, Mallory, spouse Trevor Zielinski, Jessica, spouse Scott Hubbard, Michael, spouse Jordan Plath, Mackenzie Anderson, Amanda, spouse Marcus Lankford, Mark, spouse Haley Plath, and Shanna, spouse Vinnie Vicardi, Skay, 15 great-grandchildren, and Kathy's sister, Florence Hagen. Kathy was preceded in death by her parents, husband Dwayne, one son, James Leo Anderson, a son-in-law, Todd M. Plath, and siblings Bruce Beasley, Mary Ellen Stenninger, Herbert Beasley, Arthur Beasley, Jane Hanrahan, Frank Beasley, Renata Miller, and Nellie Sindelar. Kathy's family would like to thank everyone at Lantern Park Care Center and Care Initiatives Hospice for their compassionate care and support. Her family would also like to thank Sheila Whitlock and Deb Loker for their compassionate and excellent care during the past several years. You're listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now I'll continue with today's obituaries. Janet Patricia Crow, 82, of North Liberty, passed away from a sudden stroke on Sunday, March 5th, at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics. A gathering time will be held from 2 to 4 p.m. Saturday, March 18th, at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service, Iowa City. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the American Cancer Society. Janet was born on April 11, 1940, in West Lebanon, New Hampshire, the daughter of Edward William and Geneva Penny Potwin. She graduated with honors from Burdett Business College in Boston. Janet was married to Robert Crow of Muscatine, Iowa, on September 12, 1964, in Our Lady of the Snows Church in Woodstock, Vermont. She served as the registrar for the University of Iowa College of Dentistry for over 38 years, retiring in 2007. Janet loved to sing and was a member of Sweet Adelines of Iowa City, who won the international competition in Omaha and were chosen to represent the United States in a concert tour of Paris, France in 1989. She enjoyed reading, loved gardening, and golf in the Women's League for many years. Janet is survived by her husband, Bob, three children, Linda, spouse Jeff Showalter of Riverside, Steve Crow of Iowa City, and Brian, spouse Heather Lauk, Crow of North Liberty, and children, Sam and Grace Crow, and five siblings, Anita, spouse Jim Brennan, Mary Carlson, Kathy Douglas, Maureen, spouse George Noonan, and Tom, spouse Diane Potwin. Online condolences may be left for the family at lensingfuneral.com. Byron Frederick Holst, 85, from Atkins, passed away on Wednesday, February 22nd. Byron was born on March 24, 1937, to Alfred and Stella Holst in Keystone, Iowa, the third of six children. He graduated from high school in Keystone in 1955. 
Growing up, Byron's passions were basketball, cruising the avenue in Cedar Rapids in his 56 turquoise and white, two-door hardtop Ford, and life on the farm. After high school, he enlisted and served in the U.S. Army and the National Guard, serving with his brother Harvey and several friends. He met the love of his life, Sharon Williams, in 1970. Excuse me, in 1957 at the Lincoln Cafe after a dance in Belle Plaine. They married on October 24, 1959, at Christ United Methodist Church in Belle Plaine, and from that point, the focus of his life was his family and farming. With Sharon, Byron had four children, all of whom remember his ability to make them laugh, to listen, to loudly sing made-up songs during rides with him on the tractor and on top of hay wagons as he drove across fields, his skill at shooting hoops on a gravel driveway, and his patience for reading endless stacks of little golden books or comic books any time his youngest daughter caught him in a quiet moment. Byron farmed for most of his life, eventually residing on the land that had passed through generations of his family and which was honored as a heritage farm at the Iowa State Fair in 2018. He was never happier than when he was working with hands out in the fields or with his cattle. He worked with his children in preparing show cows for the fair, with his son Todd earning grand champion with one of Byron's beloved Simmentals at the Benton County Fair and first place in the Simmental Division at the Iowa State Fair, both in 1982. Byron was also involved in organizations that promoted farming. He was a member of the Farm Bureau and served on the Benton County Cattlemen's Association Board for almost 20 years, serving as its president twice and as treasurer. He could be seen behind the Cattlemen's Grill at county fairs and town festivals, and he treasured his time representing the life he loved and laughing with his friends. The laughter continued with his card club friends, of which he and Sharon were a part of for 40 years, and in his his remaining years with his wonderful neighbors and friends who were always there for him. Byron was also a member of the American Legion for 22 years and the American Turners for 40 years. He was a supporter of the Benton County Food Pantry in Belle Plaine. Together with Sharon, he was a member of both the Chelsea United Methodist Church and the Belle Plaine United Methodist Church. Byron is survived by his brother, Lester, Les, Holst of Indianola, his sister Carol McGinnis of Cedar Rapids, his sisters-in-law, Anne Holst of Independence, and Nona, spouse Williams Kruger of Cedar Falls. His four children, Brad, spouse Pam Holst of Rubicon, Wisconsin, Dawn, spouse Greg Ingraham of Panama City Beach, Florida, Todd, spouse Karen Holst of McKinney, Texas, and Heidi, spouse Bill Coombs Holst of Albion, Maine, 12 grandchildren and 11 great-grandchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents, Alfred and Stella, his siblings, Olga Sikir, Ruth Dvorak, and Harvey Holst, his brothers-in-law, Vernon Sikir, Bob Dvorak, Duane, spouse Carol Mulholland, and Klaus Kruger, his sister-in-law Kay Holst, and Sharon, his wife of 63 years. As was his wish, Brian has deeded his body to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There will be no public visitation or service at this time. The family will announce a celebration of life for both parents, as Byron wanted, at a later date. Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home of Cedar Rapids is in charge of arrangements. Online condolences can be left at cedarmemorial.com. Memorials may be directed to Benton County Food Pantry in Belle Plaine and the Benton County Cattlemen's Association or the charity of your choice in his name. Jolene Artis Engbritson, 
of Esterville, passed away on February 22nd at Avera Holy Family Hospital. She was born October 17, 1952, to Warren B. Shorty Mortimer and Donna Bricks Mortimer. Jolene graduated from Esterville High School in 1971. She married Michael S. Roberts and moved to Cedar Rapids. Before moving back to Esterville, she married David Engbertson. She worked at Forest Ridge Youth Services for many years, making a positive influence on many lives before retiring. She is survived by her mother, Donna Bricks Mortimer, sister Julie Jim, spouse Jim Hansen, sister Lil Harem, significant other Jeff Hughes, son Todd, spouse Jennifer Roberts, daughter Tasha Roberts, and her three grandchildren, Frankie, Ella, and Abby. A private family service will be held at a later date. Vernice Shada, 96, of Anamosa, died peacefully Monday, March 6th, at her son's home in Crossville, Tennessee. Massive Christian burial will be held 11 a.m. Tuesday, March 14th, at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Anamosa, with interment in the Holy Cross Cemetery. Father Sean Smith will officiate at the services. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday at the Getch Funerals Home, Anamosa, where a parish vigil service will be held at 6.30 p.m. By visiting getchonline.com, you may share your thoughts, memories, and condolences with Vernice's family and sign the online guest book. Surviving are three children, Dr. Victor Shada, Susan, significant other David Jekyll Shada, and Timothy Roxian Shada. Four grandchildren, Stephanie Allie, McKenna, and Jacob, her brother, Sylvester, spouse Joanne Hines, and her sister-in-law, Ruth Hines. She was preceded in death by her parents, her husband, Tony, infant son, Tony Jr., and her siblings, Virginia Benter, Allen, Edward, Clifford, Manford, Marcellus, Virgil, and Edward Hines. Vernice Ann Hines was born August 11, 1926, at Farmington, Wisconsin, she was the daughter of Paul and Esther Bocher Hines. Vernice graduated from the Anamosa Community Schools. She married Tony Shada on August 31, 1949, at St. George Orthodox Church, Cedar Rapids. The couple owned and operated Shada's Market and later Shada's Sporting Goods. She also worked at Woody's Cafe for many years. Vernice was a member of St. Patrick Catholic Church and the Red Hat Society. Okay, before signing off, I'm going to read the Eastern Iowa Briefs out of West Liberty. Eulen Spiegel's Spring Break Puppet Show is Wednesday. Eulen Spiegel Puppet Theater will present special daytime performances of Uncle Rabbit's Adventures at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. Wednesday at Owlglass Puppetry Center, 319 North Calhoun, West Liberty. Admission is free with donations appreciated. Uncle Rabbit's Adventures uses large, crafted hand puppets and lots of props to tell the story of a wealthy land-owning goat who doesn't want to share with his neighbors. Watch Tio Conejo and his wife Rosita tend to their chores, plant, harvest, and trick Senor Cabra, Mr. Goat, into sharing his agricultural wealth. The show was created by Monica Leo and the late Mexican puppeteer Eli Portugal and is performed by Leo and Stephanie Valles. It resonates with Mexican culture. And out of Iowa City, Iowa City's first repair cafe seeks tinkerers and stitchers. Calling all tinkerers, fixers, and stitchers, the Iowa City Parks and Recreation Department will co-host Transition Iowa City's first repair cafe from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. May 6th at the Robert A. Lee Recreation Center's Social Hall. 
Repair cafes provide a fun way to gather people who have a shared interest in fixing things while learning more about the value of repair and diverting waste from the landfill. The public also will be invited to bring their items that need fixing. Event organizers are seeking people with repair skills to volunteer. If you have skills with sewing and mending, small electronics, including cell phones and laptops, woodwork repair, including furniture, and overall tinkering, sign up as a volunteer at shorturl.at slash fitv, capital E. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. (music) 